On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we do know that you are alive, that you are well, that you are good, that you are seated in heaven on a throne, that you're ruling and reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So tonight, as we study uh, your coming back into human history, we ask that you would send God the Holy Spirit to instruct us, to lead us, to guide us, to convict us, to enable us to understand who you are, what you have done through your death, burial, and resurrection, and what still awaits us in the future. And may we, by the grace you give us, be able to apply that to ourselves personally. May we be able to share that with those that we love. And Lord Jesus, may you help make sense of why we're here on this earth and how that is to be lived in expectation of your coming. And so we love you and we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll start with a question. Any of you guys have a bad week, crummy week, horrible week, junky week, maybe just a normal week? Um, I had one of those weeks. It was the last couple weeks, to be honest with you. Nothing hugely horrible happened. It's not like I woke up and was married to Kevin Federline or something. It wasn't that bad. But, uh, But just death by a thousand paper cuts, just... Kids get sick, you get sick. Every time my kids get sick, where do your kids want to sleep when they're sick? In your bed, which means you're going to get sick. Uh, that happened, and uh, some of you know we're tight financially, and so we had a series of layoffs here at the church, and uh, the critics are going nuts, and just all kinds of work to be done, and the weather's horrible. I don't know if you've noticed that. The weather's terrible. We have flooding and mudslides. I'm like, what kind of Old Testament place is this? Uh, mudslides, like the earth cannot handle the water. That's too much water. Uh, And, you know, the last few weeks too, one of the cool things of being a pastor is you get to hear about people's lives and you get to tell them about Jesus to bring healing into the most painful and, and difficult parts of their life. But the hardest part is actually hearing what has happened to certain human beings. Uh, And in the last few weeks, I've had just a lot of conversations where children that were molested and women who were raped and just the most horrible, atrocious, devastating kind of evil has been done to so many people. And uh, at certain points, emotionally, just reach the point, at least I do, where I'm just weary and tired. and, And it's not that I don't love and it's not that I don't care and it's not that I'm giving up. It's just Sometimes emotionally, you just want to tap out. And I had one of those occasions uh, this week where I was just sort of done for the day. And my sweet wife came up to give me a big hug. And she looked at me and she said, uh, she had a question. She said, what would make it all better? Which is a dangerous question for a wife to ask. But I said, uh, I said uh, the second coming of Jesus is about the only thing that will make it all better. She says, yeah, I can't do that. I was like, I know, honey. I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate you asking, though, but if you could get them to come back, that would be awesome. I'd be, that, can I get that for my birthday? You know, that's what I really want is Jesus to come back. And, 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 and I don't say that in a flippant way, but truly the only way that everything in the world, and including my own life, is really going to get straightened out is with the second coming of Jesus. And when Jesus returns, uh, everything will be taken care of as God intends. And that's the subject of what we're studying 
together this evening. And I'll start by saying that uh, the Bible speaks of Jesus coming back. It predicted his first coming into human history to live without sin, to die in our place for our sin, to rise three days later. We looked in the previous weeks how then he ascended physically, bodily, in a glorified, resurrected body to heaven, that Jesus is alive and well today, ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the Bible also says that on on one day that, that God knows and we don't, that Jesus will in fact return physically, bodily, in his glorified, resurrected body back to human history. Uh, Jesus said this, for example, in John 14, 3, he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. So Jesus was saying, I'm going to die for your sin, rise, I'll then ascend into heaven, I'll prepare a place for you, and then I'll come back and I will take you, Christians, to be there with me forever. Uh, This is a common theme of scripture too. Angels said this at the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1. They said, this Jesus whom you've seen ascend into heaven, he will return in the same way that you've seen him go. Also, uh, authors of the New Testament like Paul, James, Peter, John, and the writer of Hebrews all tell us that Jesus is coming back. So that's that's the issue on the table is, do we believe that? And if so, how do we live in light of that? The question then begs to be answered, when will Jesus Christ return? Some of you think you know. You're freaks. You do not know, right? You do not know. I don't, you know, you could read the newspaper and Daniel and, and, you know, not go to bed for four nights and come up with a good idea and write a book or something. There's, there's people who always like to predict the end of the world and the second coming of Jesus and they write books and give prophecies and all these things. The, the truth is we know who's coming, Jesus. I'll tell you in a moment what he's going to do. What we don't know is when he's coming. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 44, the son of man will come at an hour you do not expect him. Right? Lots of people like to guess, but obviously they've all been wrong. He's not back yet. And Matthew 25, 13 says, you do not know the hour or the day. We don't know. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. It may be a week. It may be thousands of years. We don't know. We do know according to scripture that he will return. The question is what will happen when he does return? And I'll look at the scriptures in a moment. But what's interesting is that there are various people in pop culture who also have curious things to say about the second coming of Jesus. And for purposes of breadth of concept, I'll share them with you. Uh, The comedian Woody Allen said, uh, you may have uh, seen his quote, if Jesus came back and saw what was being done in his name, he he would not be able to stop throwing up. I think that's interesting. I wonder if Jesus is already throwing up because Woody Allen married his daughter, but that's a whole other sermon. Uh, It's interesting who throws stones sometimes, you know? Me and my daughter slash wife, we're really, those Christians, we think they're sick. "Hmm, That's an interesting angle. Uh, You and your daughter slash wife. I mean, we'll we'll just keep moving on. Um, British historian Thomas Carlyle says, if Jesus Christ were to come today, people would not crucify him. They would ask him to dinner, hear what he had to say and make fun of it disrespectful view of Jesus. If he came back, we'd have him over dinner. He'd answer our questions and then we'd laugh at him because he's ridiculous. Uh, Theologian Mike Tyson says, (laughs) you knew this one's going to be good. He actually wrote this in crayon, but I've got it right here. Um, (laughs) Oh, come on. That's not funny. That is not funny. I know. I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, He says, all praise to Allah. I'll fight any man, any animal. If Jesus were here, I'd fight him too. And get whooped, I might add. Uh, Another great theologian, Carson Daly, the MTV VJ, 
who hosts Total Request Live. I think that's it. I'm not a teenage girl, so I'm not totally sure. But, uh, but I think he hosts Total Request Live. He says, everybody stands on our show. That's our policy. If Jesus Christ comes on the show, guess what? It's like, stand right here, Jesus. We got Papa Roach coming up at number six. That's what Carson Daly says. Jimmy Carter, our former president, says we should live as though Christ was coming this afternoon. Mark Twain, the great author, says if Christ were here now, there is one thing he would not be, a Christian. And lastly, uh, the editor of Wired, his name is uh, Paul Bowton. He says, I really think that if Jesus were around today, he would have a blog. I don't think he would. And if he did, he definitely wouldn't have message capacity so other people could give their two cents. Uh, uh, Pretty sure of that. The question is, what will Jesus do upon his return? Some say he'll throw up, he'll get beat up, he'll have a blog, people will make fun of him. He certainly wouldn't be a Christian. What will happen when Jesus comes back? And so now we'll look at scripture and we'll ask, well, what does scripture have to say? Uh, The first thing I want to tell you is that Jesus will judge everyone who has ever lived. And I know some of you immediately are like, I don't like judgment. Well, the truth is that Jesus says in the Gospel of John that the Father has entrusted to the Son all judgment. So Jesus is the one who judges. And I know some of you have used this line before, like, you can't judge me. You're no better than me with Jesus. Mm, You're going to have to, can't do that, right? You can't say, you're no, dang it, you are better than me, huh? You can't judge me. Dang it, I got, that one has a shelf life, right? The truth is, I don't know your life. I don't know your deeds. We don't know each other's thoughts and we don't see what's done in secret, but Jesus knows and sees all and he is without sin and he's altogether good and he is the one who is fit to judge. And it says this in Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 13, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and that's Jesus, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. I don't know about you, I'm a person who really loves justice, okay? I'll just say that. I like to see when somebody is evil, they're raping, beating, stealing, molesting. I like them to be arrested, run through trial, and then not be able to do that anymore to hurt people and to do that kind of thing. I like justice. And I don't like injustice when somebody's innocent and they've been falsely accused, uh, evidence has been manufactured, people have lied, falsely accused, slandered them, or perhaps they even get falsely convicted of something they didn't do, injustice is a bad thing. Uh, We have within us, because we're image bearers of God, a desire for justice. The problem is, despite the fact that we have, you know, we have police officers and we have a court system and we have a judiciary process and we have jails and such, we do have an effort in this culture for justice but the, the sad thing is, is in a fallen world, sometimes you don't catch the bad guys. Sometimes you catch the wrong guy and he gets convicted of something that he really didn't do. Uh, sometimes people lie under oath and they, uh, they don't tell the truth, which clouds justice. Uh, there is coming a day of complete and total and accurate, perfect justice. Right? And on that day, Jesus knows all of our hearts, all of our thoughts, all of our minds, all of our lives. He knows everybody who's ever lived. He knows everything we've ever said. He knows everything we've ever done. And Jesus will make a just, perfect, righteous judgment about who we are and about what we've done in thought, word, and deed. And that day is coming. I mean, there's so many people who seem to think that because they're getting away with something that they'll be able to get away with it forever, and they won't. 
There is a day when we stand before Jesus. There is a day when Jesus judges us and Jesus' judgment is perfect and it is just and it is holy and it is good. Now that being said, that will include judgment for Christians and non-Christians. My next two points. Uh, Let me state this though, that the judgment for Christians and non-Christians is different. Um, For non-Christians, there will be a judgment as to what punishment they will receive in hell. And for Christians, there will be a judgment as to what reward they will receive in heaven. And in saying that there is a hell, I know I'm saying something that is tremendously unpopular, particularly in Seattle. But Jesus speaks of hell more than anyone in scripture. And he speaks of it as a literal place of conscious eternal torment. And what he says is that there will be the place of justice, that, that the punishment will absolutely fit the crime. Um, and in saying this, for those of you who are not Christians, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited, but I'm trying to be honest. And, and some of you may say, I don't like hell. Then do not go there. That's, that's the big idea I would like to communicate, right? Uh, here's what it says in... Romans chapter two, verses five and six. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, right, the heart that says, I'm not a sinner or Jesus can't do anything for me or I don't want to have a change of life. You are storing up wrath, a word, a concept that appears more than 600 times in your Bible uh, against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person according to what he has done. So non-Christians will stand before Jesus at the end Upon his return, there will be a final judgment and those who are not Christians will be sentenced to an eternity in hell and the punishment will fit the crime and there will be degrees of punishment according to the life that they lived and the depth of their depravity and their deeds and their misdeeds. So it's perfectly just, right? That not everybody's going to get the same exact punishment that it will be depending upon what kind of life they have in fact lived or failed to live perhaps is the best way to say it. Now, some of you may have been told, yeah, but when you go to hell, isn't that where Satan rules and demons rule and and then it's just total mayhem? That's not true. That's not true because the Bible also says in Revelation that Jesus will judge Satan and demons and that he will sentence them to punishment in hell as well. And Satan and demons don't rule over anything, including hell. It does say in Revelation 14, though, that Jesus rules in hell. And it's important that you just don't think of Jesus as the one who rules over heaven. He also rules over the earth and he also rules over hell. That when the Bible says he is Lord of all, that means everything. And it says it this way in Revelation 14, 10, he too, uh, meaning the unrepentant, uh, those who don't give their sin to Jesus, will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. That's Jesus. That Jesus rules in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, in hell. That Jesus pours out punishment and justice in even hell. And so the question is not, can I avoid Jesus? None of us can avoid Jesus. The question is, will I deal with Jesus today and become a friend, or will I deal with Jesus tomorrow as a foe? And in saying that, I'm not saying that I am better than any human being who has ever lived. I am a sinner. I have sins of omission and commission, thought, word, deed. There is no reason that God should love me. There is no reason that God should take me or any Christian to heaven. There is no reason that any Christian should experience the forgiveness of sin. What it is, is it's a gift of grace. It's the love of God. That's all that it is. That Jesus lived the life that I could not live. Jesus died the death I should have died. 
And because of that, I do not need to stand before God at the end and be judged for my punishment in hell. In a very real way, I was judged at the cross of Jesus Christ and he suffered and he died in my place for my sins. And so because of that, as Christians, we, we don't want those of you who are non-Christians to hear that you're not loved. You, you are loved. And what we would encourage you is to give your sin to Jesus so that you don't have to be punished by him, that instead he could have been punished in your place. The result is that there is no hell for those who give their sin to Jesus in repentance because Jesus has already paid their price. For those who don't give their sin to Jesus, there remains a debt to be paid, and that debt will in fact be paid. And so there will be a judgment of all non-Christians, and all non-Christians will stand before Jesus. There is also a judgment for Christians. And it is different in this way. The judgment for Christians is not that we stand before Jesus and he decides whether or not we go to heaven or hell because that was decided at the cross. But just as there are degrees of punishment in hell, there are degrees of reward in heaven. Meaning if you are someone who loves Jesus and lives a faithful life, that when you get to stand before Jesus, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. He will tell you how you lived your life and whether it was pleasing to him or not. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. So we make it our goal to please him. That's Jesus. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that is, each one may receive what is due him for the things he has done in the body, whether good or bad. So even those of you who are Christians, and some of you right now, if you're a Christian, I assure you of this, there will be days you will get up and ask yourself, why bother? I mean, why, why walk in holiness and obedience? Why love your enemies, love your neighbor? Why, why allow people to make sport of what you believe or how you behave? I mean, why, why live a life of holiness and obedience to Jesus? And he says here that we should make it our aim to please him. And, and I would tell you that as a Christian, you and I who are Christians, we will have a lot of competing voices in our life. People telling us, you should make me happy. That's not what I want you to do. That's not how I want you to live. Do you need to read the Bible? Do you need to do what Jesus says? Do you need to live like a Christian is supposed to live? Can't you think this? Can't you do this? Can't you support my lifestyle? Sometimes the heat will be turned up. They'll criticize you, make fun of you, make sport of you, twist your words to say things that you didn't say. Take it from a guy who gets paid for that to happen to him. Uh, this, in fact, does happen. There will be pressure from family, friends, coworkers to, to, to sin, to compromise, to change your beliefs. And, and the key is to know that you're really living for one day. That day when we stand before Jesus, and he tells us what he thought of our life. That's really the day that matters the most. That's really the day that matters the most, that we, we live for an audience of one, we worship an audience of one, we serve an audience of one, we will die and rise to stand before an audience of one, we will be judged by the audience of one, and we will be rewarded by the audience of one. That in the middle, you and I must always keep on the horizon, Jesus. Is what I am doing going to cause me to be ashamed when I see him? Is how I am living embarrassing and were I to stand before him today, would my eyes be downcast looking at the ground saying, Jesus, that was not right? Or would I be able to come to him and say, Jesus, I love you and I'm willing to hear your review of my life. 
and then hear Jesus say, you know, I know that was hard and I know you got a lot of pressure and I know you took a lot of hits and I know that was tempting and I know there was a lot of people that wanted you to commit that sin or change that belief or walk down that dark path and, and you didn't. Well done, good and faithful servant. You and I must always keep before us the fact that we, our aim is to please him. Right? And, and, and in that, we welcome people to speak into our life, particularly people who know scripture, who love Jesus, who, who, who are pointing us to him. But so many people want us to serve in such a way that, that we approve of them and that we're living for their approval, that our whole goal is to make them happy with us. And scripture says, no, our aim should be to please him. And that should be for the Christian, the goal that is forever set on the horizon. What that means, you and I are going to need to wait a while before we really get any sort of vindication, right? If we are walking in holiness. When Jesus returns, another thing that will happen that is just amazing uh, is that we will sit with Jesus in authority and we will judge angels. That includes demons. Okay, it says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints, and saint here means Christian. Some of you may have thought you're raised in a tradition where a saint is a holy person who dies and then miracles accompany their legacy and then they go up for a vote. No, saint means Christian. Someone who's holy, who's made holy by Jesus, set apart for Jesus. Do you not know that the saints, Christians, will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge the angels how much more the things of this life? Now, this sounds wonderful to me, not because I want to sit on a throne and judge, but because I long for that day of clarity. I love Jesus. I hate sin. I believe every word of the Bible is true. But in this life, the truth is that sometimes things are complicated and they're hard to call. Certain political issues, wars, social agendas, candidates politically, sometimes things are not obvious, crystal clear. The Bible says that we know in part and we see in part. And in that day when we sit with Jesus over the world and over the angels and we're participating in the final judgment, the glory of that moment is we will see clearly. We'll see hearts, motives, deeds. We'll see the whole picture. We'll get all the facts, not just the spin and the marketing and the advertising and the half-truths and the out-of-context statements. We'll get the whole truth. And we'll see everything as it is. We'll see everything as God sees it. Uh, Not that we want to be God, but that we want to have God's perspective. And sometimes we don't in this life because of sin, because of rebellion, because of hard-heartedness. Sometimes we see clearly we don't like it. So Romans 1 says we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Not that we don't see it, we just don't like it. We also have a three-pound fallen brain. I went to public school. There's just a lot of reasons, right, why you don't get a 100% clear, accurate, objective view of everything. But on that day with Jesus we'll see it all like God sees it. And that's a gift that he gives us. Uh, Furthermore, what happens at the second coming of Jesus is that he will lift the curse and all of its effects. I've been meditating on this for a really long time. He says this in uh, Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be any curse. Now, here's what I want you to know. We live in a fallen, cursed, sinful world. You think about it. How much money has been spent to make the world a better place. How many wars have been fought? How many elections have been held? How many petitions have been signed? How many organizations have been started? How many dollars have been given? I mean, this is the effort of human history to improve the human condition. Yet, 
depending upon how you look at it, statistically, the world may be a worse place than it has ever been. More danger, more death, more destruction, more injustice, more famine, more plague, more devastation. The issue is, well, if we're all trying so hard in all these organizations and all these governments and all these soldiers and all these wars and all this money, how come it's not getting any better? Because we live in a fallen, sinful, cursed world. Now, God didn't make it that way. The Bible says that when God was done, everything was very good. It wasn't very bad like it is today, that sin has affected everything. And it was interesting. When I was a non-Christian, I didn't become a Christian until I was 19. When I was a non-Christian, growing up in Seattle, going to high school, when you hit high school, you all of a sudden realize that the world is bigger than you, your four buddies, your favorite band, and your hobby. You start like reading the newspaper and realizing that there are other nations, things of that nature, right? The world gets a little bigger for you. And all of a sudden, I started studying world affairs and human history and realized, man, the world is a horrible place. People starving, dying, atrocity, murder, mayhem, injustice, tyranny, dictators. The world is a horrible place. And as a non-Christian, I didn't know how to explain that. And as a non-Christian, I didn't know emotionally how to process that. And and this is going to sound silly, but what I started doing then is listening to uh, old jazz musicians like Louis Armstrong. Like somehow that would fix it. I'm not exactly sure how I thought that would like topple evil dictators. Jazz will do it. So I started listening to Louis Armstrong. And I remember in some of the darker times where I really felt sort of overwhelmed by the condition of the world, I would put on the, uh, the song where he sings, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And now I think, what a stupid song that is. What a wonderful world. I mean, doesn't this guy watch the news? You know, I mean... They never, I look forward to the day when they get on the news and say, it was a good day, we got nothing for you. They go have some fun. I look forward to that day, right? But there's no shortage of carnage because we live in a cursed, fallen, crooked world. Sometimes we listen to pop songs and we say things like, well, just think good thoughts. Like, about what? You know, I mean, the world is a, is a very hard place. It's a very wicked place. It's a very unjust and oppressed place. And And we don't have anyone to blame for all of the condition except for ourselves, that we're part of this world too. And I know some of you would say, yes, you're right, Mark, there's evil people out there and they do bad things. Well, you know what? We could also bring in a bunch of people and they would say that you're the evildoer who has ruined their life. The truth is when it comes to sin, we're all victims, we've all been sinned against, and we're all sinners, we've all sinned against others. And the world is just cursed. Everything is crooked. Everything is messed up. Everything is inverted and upside down. And, and the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, there won't be any more curse. I mean, it's just not going to be as hard as it is today to live a life that is pleasing to God because the curse, all of that resistance will be removed. And in Revelation 21, 4 and 5, we get some specific um, images of what that curse-free world will be like. It says, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Hey, what do you cry about? What do you cry about? I don't talk about it a lot, but I do cry. Um, Usually it's when someone is telling me sin they've committed or sin that's been committed against them, something horrendous. In recent memory, here's what's made me cry. People telling me I was brutally raped. I just weep. I just, it's just, it just slays me. It's devastating. Hearing of children who were raped and molested, and I know far too many. You know, I mean, just hearing that a spouse has committed adultery on the spouse and 
betrayed the marriage covenant and everything is destroyed. It just slays me. It breaks my heart that someone is sick or dying. I mean, it just slays me. What makes you cry? You know, the appropriate response to sin is anger, right? It shouldn't be that way. And sorrow, just brokenness. It just, it's just devastating. And, and, and what I love is that in this life, we can and should cry. And when Jesus was on the earth, he did weep. But in the kingdom, in heaven, when Jesus comes back and he's lifted the curse and he's straightened out all that we've made crooked, I love that image of Jesus coming and wiping the tears from our eyes. We won't need to cry anymore because there won't be sickness, sin, death, evil, injustice. There won't be the curse. There won't be anything to cry about, right? That, that in the eternal kingdom that Jesus is going to rule over as king, we won't need to cry. I just look forward to the world in which we don't need to cry anymore. And if we cry, it's tears of joy. That would be fine. Uh, furthermore, it goes on to say, when Jesus returns, there will be no more death. And when's the last time you buried someone that you knew? Last funeral I preached was a few weeks ago for a young man. Most of you know the story, but he was in this church. He was in his 20s. Uh, loved Jesus, met a gal that he totally loved, was engaged, ended up getting diagnosed with cancer. Young guy in his 20s. You know, he wants to live and be a husband and be a daddy and do all the stuff that God wants all of his men to have a heart for. And they got married in the hospital because they couldn't even have a wedding. And he died. And I stood on this stage a few weeks ago and preached his funeral. I had his lovely wife sang the opening song. And death, I mean, don't you look forward to the world where there's no obituaries and there's, there's no funerals and there's no cemeteries. There's not even hospitals because nobody's sick. And there's no physical therapy. There's no medication. There's no wheelchairs. There, everybody's okay. There's no more death. We all sin, so we all die. And death is an enemy that comes for us each. And, and the Bible says that when Jesus is done taking away sin and the curse, the living God just brings life and there's no more death. It goes on to say, or crying or pain. Some of you live with constant chronic pain, don't you? Some of you know what it's like to feel pain. Uh, Pastor Leaf, who's my dear friend that opened the service, he has constant chronic back pain after surgeries and injuries. Every day he gets up and he hurts. Some of you know what that's like. It's constant chronic pain. And some of you, the pain is physical. Some of you, the pain is relational. Sin has come into the relationship. It's killed the relationship. You know, your relationships are not good. You're not close to people you should be. Family, friends are distant, hostile. There's just a lot of pain in this earth. That's why we have pharmaceutical companies making drugs. That's why we have counselors and therapists meeting with people trying to help. I mean, there's just so much pain. Pain marks this world. And when Jesus comes back, we get the world where pain is no more because sin is no more. And deep down, isn't this the world we all want? But what's interesting is I think everybody wants Jesus and nobody knows that it's him that they really long for. Uh, goes on to say, for the old order of things has passed away. He is seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. I love that, new. New bodies, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, new kingdom, new rules, new order the way things are supposed to be. 
And with the curse lifted, everything is made new. And what I love too about this, it means also that we will have good weather. <laughs> Seriously. I, I know some of you grew up in Seattle. I did too. And, and I know that some of you say, well, I like the rain. Repent. That is not a biblical concept. <laughs> It's not, man. The Bible says in Revelation that it will always be sunshine in heaven. That's, that's wonderful. Like, it is raining so much, we have floods. We have mudslides. That means the earth can't handle the water. That's too much water. We, it's far too much. It's not equally distributed. There's people right now that are dry. I don't, you know, like, I mean, it's just, the, the weather is not good. And some of you will say, but, but it's, I like the gloom. Well, that's your fallen nature that's still... <laughs> needing to be sanctified. I mean, this time of year, I log on and I'm checking flights to San Diego, Vegas, somewhere warm, sunny, you know, somewhere with a pool. I mean, I don't want to swim down Main Street. I just want a pool, you know. (laughs) And one of the things that Jesus does when he lifts the curse and its effects is he restores creation to the way it was supposed to be. What I think is so curious about this, this is the dream of every environmentalist who loves Mother Earth and doesn't understand Father God. Uh, It says this in uh, Romans 8, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it and hoped that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Here's what it's saying. We, We human beings, men and women, we sin. Sin has affected everything in God's good creation. Everything is now affected, stained, marred, polluted, corrupted by sin, including creation. What that means is now we get tsunamis and we get earthquakes and we get tornadoes and hurricanes and we get floods and mudslides and droughts and famine and plague and that creation itself is now subjected to the curse because of our sin. And that creation is yearning and anticipating for the day when the curse is lifted and creation can be unveiled in all of its glory. And I know that some of you love the outdoors and you love creation and you love all that God has made. And it is beautiful, but imagine what it would be like apart from sin, that all we get now is the cursed, fallen, imperfect world. That if it was perfect as God intended, how much more glorious and beautiful it would be. And I know some of you want a world where there is no pollution, where there is no environmental catastrophe. And I'm not saying we don't work to be good stewards of creation, but I am saying that, that the second coming of Jesus is also the good news, not only for us, but also for all of God's creation and all of God's creatures, and that that is the hope and promise and longing of Scripture. It says this as well in 2 Peter three twelve and 13. Look, uh, look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness. New earth, new heaven, all things made new. Curse, sin, its effects lifted. Some of you may have a very improper view of heaven in your mind. You probably got it from the Roadrunner cartoons or something. And it is that we will all be sort of fat kid cherub angels sitting on, you know, big fluffy white clouds in diapers playing halos with wings looking bored forever. 
right? That is not the picture of heaven. The picture of heaven in the Bible is back to the way God intended things in Genesis 1 and 2. Before there was sin and sickness and death and evil and injustice and tyranny, before all of the wickedness that comes with human and demonic rebellion against God comes into human history. My boys have asked me about it, and this is how I explain heaven. I say, boys, you're going to get a perfect body. You won't get sick. Right, won't get the sniffles like I've got tonight, won't die, won't get hurt. Creation will be perfect. My boys have asked me questions like, can we climb trees? Can we go swimming? Can we go fishing? Can we go hiking? Right? Can, we, can we jump and run and play and wrestle? And the answer is yes, because those things aren't sinful. That's what boys are supposed to do. My girls, whom I love with all my heart, uh, they've asked me things like, Daddy, can we go for walks? Because they love to go for walks and look at flowers and creation. They're both real creative, already girls, and they love to go to the nursery and look at all the flowers and the plants. I say, Daddy, when we get to heaven, can we go for walks and just go look at all the pretty flowers? Yeah. Yeah, we'll have plenty of time. Everything will be great. And you and me, we can go for tons of walks and enjoy God's new earth in the new bodies that God gives. Right, the picture of heaven is a very real earthly kingdom with a real king named Jesus who rules and reigns in peace and justice over all people's times and places. And he will give us a glorified, resurrected body after the pattern of his. Jesus died. Jesus is eternal God, entered into human history as a human being. He took upon flesh, is what Philippians 2 says. He lived a life without sin. He died, you know, broken body, shed blood on the cross in our place for our sins. Three days later, he was buried. And then three days after that, rather, he rose and he conquered sin and death and he appeared physically in a body. He ate food and he embraced people and he walked and all of those things. And then he ascended into heaven after 40 days of appearances, physically, bodily, in a glorified, resurrected body. And Jesus is alive today in a physical, glorified, resurrected body in heaven. You and I will get a physical, glorified, resurrected body. How many of you have looked in the mirror and thought, yeah, this is demonic. This is not. This is not what God intended. The devil has been at work, right? How many of you, your body doesn't work like it's supposed to? How many of you, you have pain and injury? How many of you are on medication because of physical ailment, physical therapy, chronic pain? Some of you are getting older and you know that your body is falling apart and the end is coming near. I mean, a few weeks ago, I actually got a sleeping injury. It was the weirdest thing. I was sleeping and I woke up and I had this stinging, searing pain in my shoulder. And I wish I had a good reason like, oh, you know, there were terrorists, but I defeated them or something. And actually I was just sleeping and I deeply hurt myself <laughs> sleeping. And you know, it's weird. I mean, that tells you that there's something wrong with the body. I mean, a mattress is such a simple piece of equipment. It doesn't even come with directions. You know what I mean? It's like, lay down. Okay. That's about it. And I got wounded sleeping. And, uh, and, and some of you are feeling that, right? Your body, it's fallen apart. It doesn't work like it should. And, and here's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel with a trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. As Jesus rose, so the children of God will rise. As Jesus rose in a perfect, glorified, resurrected body, so the children of God will resurrect in a perfect, glorified, resurrected body. No more sickness, no more death. I can't wait for that. 
You know, I've got a buddy of mine. He, he rode a motorcycle way too fast one day, and uh, he hit a telephone pole. And he was a locksmith, but now his hands literally are just completely almost incapable of doing anything because his arms and his hands are so mangled after the accident. He met Jesus after the accident. But he's, he's just constantly frustrated because he can't do what he wants to do with his hands. I mean, a locksmith who can't even use his hands. I have friends who've been in wheelchairs most of their life. I have friends who are bedridden, who have constant inpatient care or have an at-home nurse to look after them. Right? And, and the body that we live in is so fragile, so frail. You can get hurt so easily, so quickly. And this resurrected, glorified body will, will no longer be subject to the curse and to sin and to death and to pain. And, and I love the day when people don't need wheelchairs and, and, and people don't need crutches and they don't need physical therapy and they don't need surgery and they don't need medication. And in the meantime, I praise God for all of those things. But but even the doctors would tell you, if everybody was fine, we'd be happy with that too. That, that, that sin has affected everything, including our physical body. And upon the resurrection into the eternal kingdom with Jesus, we will get the glorified body that is no longer subject to sin and its effects. I, I just long for that day. I long for that day. It, it, is, it is a horrible thing as a pastor to do hospital visits to see people who are in constant chronic pain, to see people who want desperately to be parents, but for whatever reason, physically, they're incapable of conceiving, or women who suffer repeated miscarriages. I mean, sin has affected everything, including the human body, in a catastrophic way. And lastly, when Jesus returns, he will set up a kingdom that will extend over all peoples, all places, all times. I love that. I am so ready to have Jesus be king. If we don't, you know, when we get to heaven, we won't have any more elections, no, no, you know, missed ballots, no campaign finance reform, just Jesus. That'll be so great. Benevolent dictatorship. If there's an issue, everybody's like, what do we do? It doesn't matter. Jesus, what do you want? Just simple, clean, easy, perfect, all-knowing, loving, gracious, king of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus in charge. Everybody does what he says clean, simple, nice, easy. I long for that day. Not against politics, politicians, the government. We need all of it. But there will be a day when we just need Jesus and the kingdom will be set up and the king will be seated and everything will be fine. It says it this way in Matthew 25, 34. Then the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I want you to get the concept that when Jesus returns, he is a king. And when he returns, he sets up a kingdom. And that kingdom has no sin, no sickness, no evil, no injustice, no death, because he will take it all away and conquer it. There will be judgment for the non-Christian and proper punishment in hell. There will be reward for the Christian and proper um, acknowledgement in heaven. And so if you're here today, we all fall into one of two categories, Christian or non-Christian. And if you're a non-Christian, let me tell you some bad news. If you're a non-Christian, this is as close, this life is as close as you will ever get to heaven. To use the title from the movie, it's as good as it gets. This is your heaven. This is the best it will ever be. And you will die, stand before Jesus, and be sentenced to hell. 
Okay, I say that not to be angry or mean or rude, but to tell you that that is not what we want for you and that is not what you should desire. For those of you who are Christian, I have good news for you. This is as bad as it can possibly get. This is as close to hell as you will ever be. Right? Some of you, some of you wonder, gosh, can it get any worse? Well, maybe in life it can, but upon death, I assure you, it gets better with Jesus if you belong to him. That this is our hell. This is as bad as it gets. And after this, everything will be made new and things will be perfect. And so for the Christian, this is hell. For the non-Christian, this is heaven in a very real way. That being said, how many of you right now find it very frustrating because you're here, right? You have taxes, traffic. Tomorrow you will get up and go sit in a cubicle. Cubicle. Satan invented cubicles, not the Lord Jesus. <laughs> right? Jesus is not a cubicle God. He would not do that. Hell may be filled with cubicles. <laughs> but I'm sure there will be none in heaven. Right? How many of you who believe in the promises of Scripture, believe in the Lordship of Jesus, believe in the life after death, believe in the resurrection of the dead, sometimes it's just really hard to live on the earth knowing what's ahead, right? I mean, to be honest with you, for me, I don't have suicidal thoughts, but there are days that I just think a lot about Jesus and think about how cool it would be if he came back. For you and I who are Christians, who have our hearts in heaven, have our minds in heaven, have our imagination in heaven. We look forward to seeing Jesus and the kingdom and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal life that is promised. Sometimes the hard part is this middle called life, right? Sometimes the hard part is, what do I do in the middle? How do I not grow weary and lose hope? I tell you what, we don't become naive optimists thinking that everything's going to be fine. All we need to do is elect our candidates, picket, protest, blog, call talk radio, get fired up, make demands, raise more money, start another organization. We're not, we're not people who think that apart from Jesus, everything is going to be fine. We're also not total pessimists who think, well, let's just hunker down, wait for Jesus to get back. It's all going to fall apart. It's all going to burn. So let's just quit. Right. Paul struggled with this tension in Philippians 1. He essentially tells his church this, I would love to just be with Jesus and have it all over. Right. And as a Christian, that's probably your heart too if you're a Christian. If Jesus came back, that would be the best. That would be great. He says, yet, there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus. Some of the people who do know Jesus are still struggling, immature. They need comfort, encouragement, conviction. There's a lot of grace and truth that needs to get shared. He says, so I'm torn. I'd love to be with Jesus because that's best for me, but I need to be here because that's best for other people. So Paul tells his church, and I would tell you the same thing, that we are here as Christians because there are still people that need love, that need truth, that need Jesus. There are still people who need, need charity and love and service and compassion and mercy and conviction and repentance and sometimes hard words as well. And that as long as we are here, we should make it our aim to live in a way that pleases him, knowing that we understand the king and the kingdom. And if we live our lives according to the goal of pleasing Jesus, then we can bring a little bit of the kingdom here. We could share a little bit of love and grace and mercy and truth and repentance and humility with, with others, including our enemies. 
And in so doing, we're, we're bringing a little foretaste of the kingdom here on the earth, hoping that others will have uh, an appetite for the King, Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, some of you may think, well, if I'm going to heaven, why does it matter that I live a life of holiness? Why does it matter if I am guaranteed eternal life? I had dealt with one guy some years back who kept cheating on his wives and divorcing them and all kinds of sexual sin. And I sat down with him, I said, are you a Christian? He said, yes. I said, then how could you live the life that you live? He said, I'm going to heaven. What does it matter? He didn't understand the judgment of the Christian. And I said, well, if you are a Christian, I said, those who are Christians live a life that is pleasing to Jesus. Right? You, can't, you can't say, I, I, I love Jesus and I love sin. You, you can't have two loves. Jesus says that a tree will be known by its fruit and, and I don't see fruit in your life and I'm worried for you. I would say if you are a Christian, it is easy sometimes to look at life on the earth and say, why not sin? Why not compromise? Why not give up? Why not give in? If everything is messed up until Jesus comes back, why not just mess it up? Paul says this to Titus. He says, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, you know what? Until Jesus comes back, know that he's still alive. He's still your king. He's still your Lord. He's still your God. You still will give an account to him that he loves you and his commands for you are for good, not for harm. And that you're not here to sin. You're here to serve so that others would see that there is a better way of life made available through Jesus. That being said, for those of you who have perfectionist streaks, who are idealists, people who think that everything should be fine and perfect and good, I want you to, as a result of this, have the long view of things. I want you to have a long view of your life, of your friendships, of your ministry, of your life with Jesus, of your marriage, of your children, and of our church. The long view of things. Otherwise, my fear is some of you are going to get all fired up for Jesus and then sort of lose enthusiasm and then have another cycle of great enthusiasm and then sort of lose enthusiasm. And some of you will drive in that loop because you don't have the long view of things. There's a great verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 that I'll share with you in closing. It says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He says that there is a desire in us as God's image bearers for eternity, for there to be life, not death, for there to be health and not sickness, for there to be truth and not lies, for there to be justice and not injustice, for eternal things. That's why everybody gets frustrated. That's why we have so many organizations and pickets and protests and blogs and elections and everybody's yelling at everybody else to fix the world. Deep down, what we need, what we want, what we long for, whether we know it or not, is the second coming of Jesus. That's the only answer that gives any clarity. And what he says is that God does make everything perfect in its time. You've heard the statement, nobody's perfect. Well, nobody's perfect yet. Well, nothing's perfect. Well, nothing's perfect yet. But everything will be made perfect in its time. When is that time? That time is the second coming of Jesus. People and things will be made perfect. People and things will be made perfect. 
I'll, I'll close with a, a story. There's a, a dear friend of mine who is a Christian and had a parent who was a Christian and the relationship just never came together. Some of you know what this is like. The friendships never get figured out. The family relationships don't get dialed in. The, the lies that were told about you never get cleaned up. The misunderstanding never gets clarified. That so much is left undone in this world. That things aren't beautiful. They're not perfect. They're not pure. They're not clean. They're not redeemed. They're not reconciled. They're not whole. They're not right. It's frustrating. It's, it's agonizing. And I asked this friend of mine, his mom died, and I asked, how are you doing? You, you and your mom are Christians, but it never got all worked out. And my friend had a really good insight. He said, my mom is with Jesus now, and she's perfect. And one day I'll be with Jesus, and I'll be perfect. And we'll have a perfect relationship. That's the long view of things. That means we work as hard as we can for beauty, truth, and goodness in this world, knowing that ultimately until God makes all things new and that time of Jesus' reign begins on the earth and until that time comes for everything to be made beautiful, that we must maintain the long, patient, hopeful view of all people and things. That's what God calls of us. And I'll be honest with you, there are days as a pastor Just all of these people, all of these sins, all of these pains, all of these hurts, all of these needs, all of these criticisms, all of these misunderstandings, all that is not yet clean and right and pure and good, God will make everything perfect in its time. That time is the coming of the Lord Jesus. And at this point, we give you a chance to respond to him. It's all about Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, You need Jesus. You're going to stand before Jesus, so you may as well stand before him today. And you may tell him of your sin today to be forgiven rather than to tell him your sin on that day and be condemned. You can't avoid him, so you may as well come to him in the end as friend and not foe. Repent of your sin. He's alive and well. He'll hear you. He'll forgive you through his death, burial, and resurrection. If you're here and you're a Christian, maybe you've not lived a life of holiness. Maybe you have thought, I'm a Christian. What does it matter? You will stand before Jesus and give an account and you'll be judged for your life too. And so it's important for you to repent of sin and to live a life of holiness out of loving obedience to Jesus. When you're ready and you've repented and you've gotten some time in prayer with Jesus, you could take communion, which is remembering the body and blood of Jesus. And it's remembering that we are to continually remind ourselves of his sacrifice, body broken, bloodshed, until we eat the wedding supper of the lamb with him in the kingdom. And I would just ask you, do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that he lived, died, rose? Do you believe that he ascended into heaven? Do you believe that he is alive today? Do you believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life? And there's no salvation apart from him. Do you believe that you will stand before him and give an account? Do you believe that there is eternal life for all, some in joy, some in sheer horror? Do you believe that today is an important day because it is a day to get right with Jesus? If you are a Christian, do you believe it is an important day because Jesus wants you to live with a heart toward heaven and hands and feet committed to service on the earth? If so, you're welcome to join us in the worship of Jesus until we see him again. And we're practicing for that day when we sing and worship to Jesus. And we're practicing today. 
The Bible closes with these words in Revelation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We'll just leave it at that. Lord Jesus, you are alive and well. Thank you for living the life we could not live, for dying the death we should have died, for rising to show us what awaits us all. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we do not need to stand before you for judgment if we stand before you today in repentance. Lord Jesus, I thank you that our lives, those of us who are Christians, count that that how we live matters, that we're supposed to be outposts of the kingdom, living under the kingship of you, Lord Jesus, loving and serving well. Lord Jesus, I pray that for those who are Christians, we would maintain the long view of things, that we would know, Lord Jesus, that you will make everything perfect and beautiful in its time, that we would not grow weary and lose heart, that we would not give up and give in to sin, that we would live lives of holiness, that we would long for the day when we stand before you, see you face to face, and hear you determine how we have lived. And so, Jesus, we respond to you now in faith and repentance and in worship. We love you, and we ask you to be with us. Amen.